I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 108 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Bill Hadenko. Bill has significant experience in the fields of both mental health and technology. Bill is a licensed psychologist, a researcher, and a professor who holds joint appointment as a faculty member at Dartmouth's Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences and Dartmouth's Giselle School of Medicine. His research focuses on the use of technology to improve mental health delivery and patient outcomes. Dr. Hadenko is also an experienced software engineer and former database administrator for the National Center of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. Dr. Hadenko is currently the CEO of Trust Health, a company devoted to providing high-quality, affordable, remote psychotherapy via messaging. In this episode, we discuss his background in brain and computer sciences, the intersection of technology and mental health, our brain's development, neurodiversity, mental health stigmas, decision-making, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. This episode, as well as the following episodes that are coming out on mental health, I want to make some disclaimers. This podcast information is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I make no representation and assume no responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained in or available through this presentation. This is not medical advice. Please speak to your physician before embarking on any treatment plan. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking medical treatment because of something you heard in this podcast. Now let's get to it. Bill, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me. Great. And how are things? I know you're up in New Hampshire. I am. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm right north of Hanover, New Hampshire, where I live, sort of right on the border of Vermont and New Hampshire. Oh, very nice area. Yeah, I, I came from the Northeast and would spend a good amount of time in the winters in Vermont. So, and actually, I'm out in Colorado now, and I miss I miss that type of fall in the Northeast fall, fall. So, I hope you're you're enjoying that as it's coming through. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's been a beautiful fall. So we've been lucky. Great. Well, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about your background and, and kind of what you're doing at Dartmouth uh, with your research? Yeah. So um, my background is a professor of psychological and brain sciences. So I'm a professor at Dartmouth, and I also have an adjunct appointment in psychiatry. So I've been a professor for over 15 years now, I believe. Um, and a lot of my initial interest in work was in the vocal expression of emotion, actually. And then over time, I got a lot of background in computer science and uh, learned how to code. And about it was about 2010 when I really started thinking about the intersection of, of technology and mental health. Um, I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist. And so what happened was I, I started thinking about what, what can I do to improve the status of mental health in our country and have kind of a career goal of thinking about how we can transform the delivery of mental health care. And so I started uh, my first tech company in 2012, which was about uh, collaborative care and how can we can improve that process for those who have mental illness. And then that uh, scaled that company, uh, became a CEO, sold it in 2017, went to a second company as their chief science officer, 
Um, very long story short, uh, started a third company that I have now become the CEO of called Trust. And so I'll try to briefly tell you what that is, which is uh, essentially a, a company about telehealth for mental mental health, and it's largely focused on messaging-based care. Gotcha. You know, and, I th- and the reason, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm having you on with kind of a cohort of individuals speaking about mental health and really kind of digging in this issue is you know, I've had my own struggles and journeys with it over the last couple of years, um, years, decades, life. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it's interesting where I find aspects of it that the stigma around it I want to take down because I found so much of what has fueled some of my issues have also been areas of where that's propelled me for success. And so I'm, I'm very interested in hearing, you know, more about this because, you know, in my, my, in my world, I'm a hacker, you know, I want to understand things. I want to reverse engineer things, but what is it about the way that the brain works that drives things in such ways that you know, maybe there's a misunderstanding that we think, okay, well, if somebody's brain's firing this way, there, there's something wrong with them. But it might be also the way that they're successful. Like, what, you know, what's the underlying kind of things that go on that I think maybe there's a misconception about, you know, <laughs> brain operations that we just really don't fully understand as professionals. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I guess the first thing that comes to mind to answer that question is that <clears throat> there's a really wide diversity of brain functioning in the human population, and. I think that diversity has really been promoted by evolution over time. And the, the fact is that certain brains are better equipped for different environments. And so uh, I think a classic example of that would be if somebody has the, what we would call the diagnosis of um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. You can imagine how uh, in, a, in a certain a prior um, earlier human state, somebody who had a really good capability to shift attention quickly, um, to have higher energy level, to be very hands-on, that that could have been a very successful hunter, let's say. Um, however, that type of brain profile today in a classroom where somebody is required to sit for a very long period of time and sustain attention can be hard. Um, and so I think that in part the misconception is that we – we think of people who have different brain configurations as, as ill or well, when I think it might be more accurate to think about it in, along the lines of many different continuums that if it's in the right environment can actually be a very effective way of, of being in the world. So it sounds like the, you know, there's an aspect of, you know, when we look at things, let's say from a diversity perspective, we, still struggle that I think with with diversity in in general in society, but it seems to be like there's less of a acceptance of that, so to speak within mental diversity is is kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. I I think we, we, we might call it neural diversity, right? That, that uh, we, we like to be binary in our perceptions of things. It just makes categorization easier for us. And, Therefore, to label something as psychopathology is, is easy in certain contexts, when in fact, it really might just be a, a natural representation of brain functioning um, that, that is adaptive in certain contexts and not adaptive in others. And I, I, I'm, I'm guessing here, and I'm, I'm probably throwing up a little bit of softball, but what we really know about 
I guess the way the brain works, even human physiology is still you know, relatively new compared to the total timeline of, you know, human existence and our forefathers. Oh yeah. I, I mean, it, it's interesting because the pace of scientific discovery has just been incredibly fast over the past, you know, 30 years. And so much of that has been driven by advances that we've had in things like uh, neural imaging, where now for the first time in all of human history, we can actually peer into a living brain and to see what's happening when somebody is thinking. Um, however, with that said, we, we have so many more questions than we have answers. And a lot of that stems from the fact that the brain is, you know, billions and billions of neurons and it's so complex and, and so many neurochemical processes are happening. Um, and that even at our current level of imaging, we still don't understand a lot of the basic mechanisms that arise to that lead to certain very important things like consciousness. So it's a very complex thing. And that's part of why I'm, it excites me. It's just a very fascinating thing to look at. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, one of those things that, you know, through my therapeutic journeys where you know, I've suffered from, you know, anxiety, where it occurs when there's no anxious things or things to be anxious about, I will start inventing things. And my therapist said, well, look, you know, Doug, it's like you're, you're pre-programmed a certain way to expect that a bear to jump through the window. And when it doesn't and you feel safe, you're going to start inventing things. Um, and so it's like the same thing that makes me incredibly good at going into an incident response situation, being the first one into a burning building of putting out all these cyber fires and, and doing incident response and, you know, keeping a company from going over the precipice. It's also the same thing that, you know, wires me to when that's not there to, <laughs> to kind of almost fall apart at times. So are there other types of things like that through like kind of, you know, that we're starting to understand more about neuroscience that, you know, it runs those types of parallels. You know, some of the things, again, that we look at as, as stigmas, and you mentioned ADHD, are there other types that we're starting to maybe kind of look at in different ways and say, okay, well, now I understand the good and bad, you know, both sides of that coin. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, the two examples that just quickly popped to mind would be maybe obsessive compulsive disorder and maybe somebody who's on the autism spectrum. So with OCD, it's, a uh, it, you know, people have a brain wiring where they, may have this obsessive-like quality to how they interact with the world. And that obsessive-like quality, um, we know in, in many, many people has led to great success. Um, so think of you know, Howard Hughes, for example, but there's just so many people who, because they have this incredible attention to focus and detail and they become really obsessed with something, they are hugely successful with it because they're able to maintain that, that engagement, you know, longer than the typical person. Um, and then similarly, I think with ASD, autism spectrum disorder, we see uh, a, a similar type of fo focus and persistence and, um, you know, sometimes really incredible intelligence that, that is, seems to be really linked with that brain profile and can lead to great areas of success but then some sometimes other areas of dysfunction in life. Yeah. And I found that still, you know, and we talk about neurodiversity in the workforce, it's in, in particularly with folks that are on the autism spectrum that, you know, either I've known have been fully diagnosed and have you know, shared that with me or, you know, that there's, there's some clear signs and they've, 
they've indicated, you know, the, the, the stigma around them is like, well, they don't have human skills. They don't have people skills. They don't, they don't understand how to communicate. And my argument has always been, I was like, I think you're just looking at this the wrong way. I think it's, it's you, not them. They just communicate and operate a different way. You know, I wouldn't go and you know, sit in front of a Mac computer goes, why, why is there no start bar? This computer's broken. I'm just like, well, no, the interface is just different. And I'm starting to find that more with, more with individuals and I'm trying to open myself up to that and say, well, okay, the interface with this individual might be different. So what, how I communicate and how I interact with them has to be different. Um, I mean, is, is that kind of the right approach to look at that or is there something else I might be missing? No, I think you're, you're on target with, with thinking about it that way that it, it, well, and I think for all of us, it's just such a great message and a great way to look at this as, as celebrating diversity, right? The, the idea that the fact that there are differences between us is something that's great and helpful. And if we can learn how to change our approach instead of trying to fit people in a certain box and make them accommodate our own way of working, I think we all benefit ultimately from that. And and I, you know, this is a, one of the great frontiers of stigma in mental health is just helping to uncover this for people that it might not actually be the worst thing that somebody has uh, a different way of thinking or a different way of being in the world. It's just a, a difference. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, and that, again, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be at a company that, that celebrates neurodiversity, has a neurodiversity group that I'm, I'm becoming more active with how recent is this? You know, I've, I've only really seen or heard this term, I would say within the past year, um, and, and not realizing, you know, since I started doing my own research that it was a thing, but really hadn't seen it in many other companies that I've worked for. Is this, is this still a relatively new move movement? Yeah, I'd say it is pretty new. Uh, the, in the, the term neurotypical is a term that has been around for maybe 10 years or so. So, it, and, and that term, I think, really derived from uh, the uh, group of people who had autism spectrum disorder and wanted to try to help people to shift that paradigm and think about how calling somebody um, autistic was akin to what, how, you know, reversing the paradigm, them saying, well, you're neurotypical <laughs> and, and helping to celebrate that maybe they have some additional capabilities or skills because of how their brain is wired that that should be valued. Um, but I think to go back to your basic point, uh, the in, in, in broad public terms, you know, these things change slowly, um, but then you have these rapid accelerations. And I think in the past five years or so, we've seen some interesting rapid developments in a number of areas, um, also including gender. I think there's been a very rapid acceleration in changes there of people's perception of what that even means. Yeah, it's funny. I when I started looking at topics to kind of champion and talk about, it was mental health and it quickly led into this overarching thing of diversity. I, and I think that I started looking that as the the kind of umbrella term is diversity and inclusion and mental health being a part of that because we look different or we think different and the more inputs that you get on a particular problem from different perspectives, you know, for me thinking scientifically, it's like, okay, that's good. It keeps me out of my own biases. Um, you know, how, how can we continue to get people to start looking at that way to say, you know, when you, when, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail to start getting other people to look at things a little differently. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think that there's a duality at, at play here that is, 
that might be part of the the key to to this problem in my view the the duality is that on the one hand everyone recognizes that we all are different um, we have different personalities we have different views um, you know we, we we operate as individuals on the other hand I think that there's great value in thinking about commonalities and how we are so much more similar to one another than we are different. And uh, that, that kind of, you know, binarity or duality in the same concept, I think might be part of the, the key to the answer here, because on the one hand, we can see that there's great value in celebrating the diversity and, and different perspectives and the creativity and all the things that come from that, that can be great. But on the other hand, we often get so stuck in this idea of, of differences, right? And I think at a societal level right now, that, that's incredibly apparent, right? That over the, the past four years, there's been this incredible in, increase in um, conflict and divis divisiveness around difference and difference of opinion and different ideas. And if instead, I think we could also take this other perspective and recognize that there is incredible value in the commonality of our experience as humans and that there's there's reasons for us to connect and feel connected to someone even when they are very different i think using those two things and and sewing them together in a in an important way would be very helpful so how much of that i'm also curious you know and this, this could be a we can break this out a couple different ways, but you know, how much of this is learned behavior, evolutionary or hardwired, you know, where I look at things like, you know, this idea of tribalism, I get why certain folks of similar, maybe look, feel, or backgrounds might gravitate towards each other. I mean, we, that's been part of our, our, our societal makeup for a while, but it, it comes with a cost, you know? Yeah. So how, how much of this is it can part of our DNA versus stuff that we might learn or, or get socially influenced? Yeah, well, it's certainly both. I mean, I think if I had to, from, from my, my study in psychology, I guess, if I had to point to the, the most common or most important brain mechanism that might underlie this notion of tribalism, it probably comes down to the idea that our, our brain is wired to categorize. That we, it, for a whole bunch of reasons, our brain tries to reduce the energy output associated with tasks. And one way to do that is to, to be able to categorize things into groups. So whether that is, I'm looking at different objects and I say, both of those objects are chairs and I categorize them together as chair, even if they look very different. Similarly, we do the same kind of thing with people. And we say, these two people look the same. So they are of this category. And it allows me to not have to expend more mental energy into thinking about how they are different. And so that basic human quality, uh, which might actually persist really largely across the animal world, um, ultimately leads to things like outgroups and prejudice and tribalism because we connect things together. Um, where things become really cold, so, so that process of the brain is, uh, is, is fundamentally devoid of judgment. Where 
culture really starts to overlay is when we start putting judgments on those categorizations. So this group of people is bad because of X, Y, or Z. And that's where I think that this interaction is, is tricky at a, at a cultural level. And, and then reversing it is the more, most important question once these prejudices have been developed culturally. And actually, there's a lot of good data on uh, how we do that. How, how we help with that, which I'm also happy to chat about. Yeah, no, I'd love to hear more. I mean, I, I find, you know, I, it's, it maybe even step back a little bit. I'm, I'm, it's, you know, I've heard these things like, you know, where, you know, when you look at other mammals, particularly primates, even pigs, like, oh, we have 99.99, whatever percent of the genetic code. But is that almost like a, maybe a, 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 a not a great correlation? You know, when I, I'm curious about how much, of yeah, we might share a genetic base with say you know other primates that we've come from, but how much of our brain development is really the same? Is is there a lot of overlay in mapping, or are there areas of our brain that are really kind of either you know physiologically evolved functions that that operate differently? Well, uh, if you want to just uh, discuss the basic brain physiology, I'd, I'd say our brains are remarkably similar to many many other organisms and. The primary difference in the human brain is the prefrontal cortex. So, you know, the most recently evolved part of our brain, really. And, and that is the thing that makes us most uniquely human. And it, it's where uh, aspects of personality reside. It's where, um, in particular, executive planning and decision-making, reasoning, those sorts of things reside that give us a, a, a perceived strong difference from other non-human animals. But overall, uh, you know, the basic functions uh, structurally are similar. And also, we think that the core emotional um, experience of non-human animals is probably fairly similar. Right. And one of the things I remember hearing was, you know, with the prefrontal cortex is like, you know, when you say that that's not where necessarily um, instinctual decision-making happens. And when Steve says, you know, trust your gut, it happens in a different area of your brain, which may or may not be right um, because you do fill in those blanks and categorize and, and do all these massive process compute operations really quickly. Whereas in the free prefrontal cortex goes, wait a minute, let, let me dissect that and mull on it and chew on it. and might come up with something that could either be better or worse. Is that, is, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, the the interesting thing when we actually look at human decision making is that it is it is actually often far more guided by that more primal system than it is with actual reasoning, um, and very often we make big errors because we don't we don't think more logically and just use base level statistics to act. <laughs> so I don't, I, I, you know, I think that it can be a great asset to us. And the way that we use our prefrontal cortex probably most is, is kind of what we call the stop system, which means that our emotional or affective system drives us to do something. And very often our prefrontal cortex helps us to weigh consequences and to determine if it should shut down that emotional system. And so, so that, that piece of our, decision-making in our, in our brain processes is, is very powerful. Um, but it just core decision-making, it's often a lot more um, kind of primal than we might like to think it is. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and, and I, you know, my wife 
<laughs> criticizes me for this at home all the time for over-engineering pro- uh, solutions to simple problems all the time. But it's funny <laughs> in my work life, uh, I feel like that's, you know, that's my superpowers. I walk into these very complex organizations with all these different moving parts and they're struggling with the cybersecurity program. I'm like, why don't we just do it this way? This is like the most basic way and it's going to solve 80% of the problems. And there's almost a resistance. Like it's, it's too simple. We can't do that. And people have, ta- I've seen people talk themselves out and almost get to these, these biases and bike shed about other things where I'm like, why don't we just fix the problem? Like, is that part of that problem where we just, we can't almost can't accept what's in front of us at times. Yeah, no, no, I think you're absolutely right. It, 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 um, it can convolute the process most certainly and make it, make it harder to see our way through things. Um, and, and, and do keep in mind again, that, um, emotional decision-making is something that, um, we use frequently and will often, often, um, be confused with rational decision-making. Um, and, and part of it is, you know, and this is something I'm sure from your background that you're just very well familiar with is uh, it's, it's so rare that we're ever making any decision on a complete set of data, right? Like almost always, it's a question of probability and uncertainty and just how much is there of it, of those things. And then when we try to make a decision, it's a matter of, well, um, we'll do our best to use the incomplete data set, but ultimately it comes down to things like our gut, right? What do we, what, what do we feel is the right choice here? And, and that then reverts back to this more ancient emotional system that's guiding us on sometimes cues that we're not even aware of. Would that be where, you know, kind of those things, I'm also fascinated with the idea of cognitive biases and logical fallacies that people just can, they can really fill in the blanks and and really lead themselves to their own answers. And I'm certainly, you know, your your background in science, it's, it's a constant struggle to make sure you you set those scientific methodology parameters to peer review and self check. But it's, it's, I see it in people in professional lives all the time. I mean, they really convince themselves that something has or has not happened in a certain way just because of all these things. I mean, is that where these areas come with this, this meld of emotional and logical decision-making? Yeah, I think that's right. The the concept of, of heuristics and these judgments really came from uh, people being fascinated with why we don't make more logical decisions um, and and why is it that we can get caught in these errors so easily. And I think a lot of that comes back to some of these, the principle that I mentioned prior of our brain ultimately being wired to try to help us preserve mental energy and to come up with the most accurate solutions to things. And when in general, you know, heuristic more often than not is accurate. It actually does help us and does provide a correct answer. But when we place our brains in these more complex problem sets, uh, whether that's, you know, computer science or something else, it's generally it, you know, we're just more prone to make errors because that's not what these heuristics were designed for, you know, um, hundreds of, you know, thousands of years ago. And, and so, you know, and this is where I'm, uh, I'm curious, curious to validate my understanding, but like where a lot of things happen with inside of the brain where different parts work together and, and synapses connect is with, with neurotransmitters. Um, 
uh, I'm imagining there's much more than we we talk about or is publicly you know discussed on the regular. But you know, there's certainly you know things like serotonin, dopamine, uh, melatonin, all these things. I mean, how how do these balances play in the areas of the brain that influence these types of things? Because um, I'm always curious in the physiology of that because people say, oh well, somebody has you know dopamine rush or an imbalance of serotonin or that, and it's it, to me it almost feels like they've maybe framed what's happening in the brain, maybe not necessarily correctly. Yeah. Um, well, so, so the first thing I'd say is when we think about psychopathology, when we think about normal brain process, either one, we often try to frame it in the context of maybe a, a neuropsychosocial model, which is the idea that there's absolutely brain processes that have to underlie human behavior and that are relating to how someone thinks and feels and behaves um, neurologically. But then there's also psychological principles that are that we use to understand. That would be things like heuristics, cognitive biases, cognition itself. And then the social piece of things of um, as a human social species, there it's just so uh, relationships and, and our environment and interaction with things is so critical to how we will respond to something that usually we try to look at all three of these layers when understanding whether it's normal human decision-making or whether it is brain processes. And so in, in terms of just looking at the lens, the neurological lens, um, this is where we, we're, we're learning so much. And like I said, there's so much we still don't know. And it's because the complexity of what happens in a, in a brain, it, there's thousands of, maybe hundreds of thousands of inputs that are going to impact someone's thinking, someone's uh, experience, their emotion, because it, it ranges from somebody is, eats a food that then you know, impacts the level of neurotransmitter that they have, or they take a psychoactive substance, which really dramatically increases some level of neurotransmitter, um, or they're just dehydrated and that will impact their brain or there's hormones or, you know, I'm just giving some examples here, but the point is that it is so incredibly complex that we can't really even tell you, you know, if you it, many of the drugs that we give people for mental illness problems are more like a shotgun approach where it's really dramatically increasing, let's say serotonin, but it does it in many different regions of the brain in many ways we don't even understand. We just know that it helps. <laughs> so uh, all that to say, like we, you know, we know a lot, but there's so much we don't know. Right. And, and that's the, uh... I think that's at times the scary things that people might look to to you with everything in your pedigree. So, well, tell me what to do. How do I fix this? You know, um, in, in the framing of that, I think is necessarily could be wrong. It's like, is are we fixable? You know, can we fix our brains? Well, the the good news is we can certainly change our brains. Um, I don't. I don't know that um, I would use the word fix in general when, when working with somebody, but I, I, in terms of change, um, you know, one of the great mysteries of the human mind is actually the concept of sense of self. So if you think about it, um, really your physical body is, is going to change 
dramatically over the course of uh, several years. In fact, you know, some people say that your entire body, like every cell in your body will effectively die within seven years. And interestingly, you still perceive that you're the same person between now and seven years from now, even though your brain has completely changed. And so what's, what's really interesting about that is thinking about, well, one of the things that's going on in the brain is your brain is actually trying to create self-constancy, meaning you believing that you're the same person over a long period of time, even though physiologically and chemically, you are completely different. So the reason I bring that concept up, which is, is I think kind of mind blowing a little bit, if you think about that level of change, is it might be more accurate to say that we know for certain that your brain is going to change. And we know for certain that you are going to change. And sometimes when we help people to quote, fix their brain, it can be almost more of an exercise of helping them to realize that things are changing and that maybe they're fighting to stay the same instead of uh, allowing themselves to be different. Yeah, it's funny, but it almost, it almost draws parallels to what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's, it's almost too obvious when you think about it. It's like, yeah, that totally makes so much sense. Why have I never framed it that way? And thinking things in such these finite or static binary terms of good and bad, and I will get to here, and therefore this is good. And then when I get to this state of well-being, I haven't felt that way. And it's probably because I haven't accepted there's just constant change, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. yeah. Which, which kind of leads into the, the idea of, you know, we want to lean into is about, you know, the, the idea of mental health care. It, it just, it seems there's a, just, a, there's good in it. There's bad in it. A lot of misinformation, misunderstanding. You know, there's been certainly a lot of stigma around folks seeing mental hair, care. Um, and then a lot of people honestly have had mixed responses to how they've had effective modalities of treatment and things. I mean, what, what's, what's, you know, for things that could be fixed, or where are areas of improvement that we can make with the mental health system? Oh, wow. Yeah, we definitely don't have enough time to talk through this <laughs> I one. know, I was watching, I about 15 <laughs> minutes, uh, see how much we can slide in. <laughs> totally loaded question, by the way. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, um, so... I mentioned that a big, when I first gave my long self-introduction, I, I mentioned how it's been kind of a career goal of mine to take on the mental health system. And I think that it is really broken. Uh, and I think it's broken in a, in a fundamental systemic way where it is undervalued, um, meaning that it's under reimbursed um, at a kind of insurance level. I think it's broken in terms of the number of clinicians that we have relative to the demand that's out there. Um, the, the cost for people is too high. It, it, I just think there's a lot of problems. Um, and, and I think you know, fundamental to that is really what tools are we using? How can we help people and what are the best methods? So to answer this last question and not go into the half an hour, hour diatribe on the system. <laughs> what I'll say is that um, the science of psychology is really progressing. And I, I really do believe that we, you know, every year we know more and more about what does work and how we can help people more and more effectively. And going to this conceptualization of kind of the neuropsychosocial approach, we know now that there are some really great medications for certain 
psychological disorders. So for example, if you struggle with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, it is probably wise to have medication support um, for those type of disorders. If there's other other disorders, um, it might not be as is warranted and maybe even much more effective to use a, a talk psychotherapy that really uh, is, is intervening in a different level, but still has brain effects. And that's to me, as a psychotherapist, somebody who does talk therapy, one of the most amazing things is that we are really, our, our craft is really about the language of, of um, change. Uh, what we do is we use words to help someone to change their brain. And we know that it works. And we know what words at what time and with whom uh, really works. And, and that's actually one of the biggest areas of research and interest for me is how do we focus on that language of intervention and make that the greatest science of this next 10, 15 years so that that type of intervention, which is low cost, is effective and and we know can really help people is then you know um something that can be accessible to everybody is there is there an example of some of the language that you can that you think of to share that might you know kind of lend some some context to that yeah so probably the you know the most well-researched area of clinical intervention is probably cognitive behavioral therapy and Cognitive behavioral therapy is a type of intervention that focuses mainly on how someone thinks and the cognitions that they have and the behaviors that they're engaged in. And on the cognitive side, we, we know that the human brain in certain affective states, for example, like if someone is depressed, is likely to think a certain way and make certain kind of distortions about the world because of the emotional state that we're in. So an example would be if you're, if you're depressed and you have a bad interaction with someone, then you might automatically jump to a distortion which says, uh, no, no one loves me or I'm unlovable. And that kind of distortion is a distortion that we can label and understand as, as in this case, it might be all or none thinking or overgeneralization. And so what we have in our toolkit as psychotherapists is we have counter language and techniques that we can teach people to undo that kind of thinking. And so instead of saying to yourself, uh, you know, no one loves me, I might help you to learn how to say, is that true? And what evidence do you have to suggest that it's accurate or inaccurate? And by challenging your own thinking and saying, well, actually, I guess my friend Tim really does care about me. Now, what that does is it opens up your mind to a new way of thinking and a new way of understanding the world that actually then impacts your mood and makes you feel better. So that's just one example, but it it helps to focus on this idea that there are real good and validated scientific techniques that we've developed to help people to create new ways of thinking. And we, this is something that, that I'm really passionate and interested in. In, in, in the brain kind of pathways, what I've heard, and I don't know how accurate this is, um, is that it almost kind of rewires some other words. Like when you, when you have trauma, when you have things that, you know, you kind of build in these, 
these response mechanisms to things that you know might have a more negative outcome that when you kind of retrain it you can also kind of rewire it in a more positive way and that you know by reinforcing that you can um, maybe again, it, it, I don't know if it's, it's rewiring the brain, the right way to phrase it of getting things to then be in that more, maybe positive light. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the cognition itself is really, it's, it's very much about connections between neurons and the way in which things are connected, how different regions are connected. So I don't think it's inaccurate to say that you are, you are literally physically rewiring your brain by having different types of thoughts. Yeah, it's funny. And one of one of the thought exercises I picked up and I challenged in some of my mental health talks, and I said at the end of it, what I want everybody to do is tomorrow morning put a piece of paper and a pen by your, your bed, wake up, maybe kind of get some air, but write down, like once you're kind of moving around, write down five good things about yourself. And everybody's like, Yeah, okay, no problem. And then I would have people hitting me up the next day going, That was really hard. I my like the, it was like this mental exercise where they're like, I I started thinking about other things and I was like, I oh, know that's the trick is the way, <laughs> the way you think about things can be reframed. Absolutely. In, and that, that's where that, that amazing ahead. thing happens of right. You're, you're not just changing thinking, but you're physically changing the structure of your body by doing so, which is that, that amazing mind body connection. Yeah. And I've heard, you know, I'm kind of curious what you think about some of this, this cutting edge or new edge research on, you know, folks are doing things with disassociatives and so whether it be ketamine, MDMA, you know, uh, uh, psychocelibin, you know, with this, all these are, are, how forefront is that? Is that something that can truly be as being marketed now with the amount of research going to be that groundbreaking? Um, well, I think only, yeah, only time will tell, but I, 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 that, you know, using psychoactive substances for brain research is, a, a you know, really spans back to the sixties and before and, um, Timothy Leary and uh, all sorts of other folks were really very interested in trying to understand, can we, can we use these psychoactive substances to develop new ways of thinking for people that is freeing for them? And helps them in many different ways. Um, and I, I think that there's certainly something to it. Uh, it. The problems, of course, become with things like unregulated substance use, um, dangerous uh, pot addictive potential of, of certain of these drugs that are used. So I, you know, I think if, if people are thoughtful about it, if they do it within the context of scientific studies, if we are, are open about the potential of these things being really um, useful and not, you know, overlaying some negative cultural views that may have been developed around them. I think there's pretend, you know, a lot of potential. And I think that, uh, I think we're going to see this trend probably persist for a while longer. Yeah. I've seen some really interesting research and studies on folks with PTSD, childhood trauma, addiction, where it's been, and I've actually known somebody who's, who's done microdosing of ketamine who had very severe anxiety and panic attacks and said it was, it was life altering and he had a very clinical setting. Uh, but I think there's, again, it gets back to that stigma of like, well, how, wait, why are you treating mental health? There's like, there's, you shouldn't be doing that anyway. Like that's, there's nothing wrong with people. And why would you use these substances? Like, well, it's just another psychoactive substance. We use a lot of them. There's SSRIs are psychoactive. So caffeine is a, is, you know, a nootropic in certain things. So it's like this, Again, it's just—it feels like we're constantly fighting the stigma against better understanding 
how the brain can be, you know, you know, better is a tough word. I don't want to put judgment on it, but, you know, maybe operate in a more, uh, a, a more beneficial way. Yeah. Well, you know, a, a framework that I really like that I think will, that, that will continue to touch on this concept of stigma and, and what are we trying to accomplish? I, I really like the framework of well-being and thinking about um, mental health is a very critical part of our well-being. And if the goal is how do I maximize my well-being? How do I optimize flourishing in my life? That's the goal. And mental health is a very important part of that goal because I don't think there is health without mental health. Yeah. It's it's and I'm I'm hoping to see more of that change within professional circles too is when you look at and I, I don't have the numbers on top of my fingers, but the amount of people that have had to take, you know, what, you know, basically a health day due to mental issues, whether it's anxiety, burnout, whatever it is, um, and frame it to some other thing as being a physical ailment. Um, I'll have the flu or something, you know, where, where people have really had to, you know, hide the fact that they're taking some time to deal with these issues. So I'm hoping that's something to change, but I'm also curious too, is how much, you know, maybe COVID will in a weird way help that. I mean, we're all feeling a lot of stress and anxiety about it. It's an awful election season. And, you know, do you think there could be benefits of that of really kind of coming out of COVID, you know, in one aspect of, um, shining a light on this where people say, yeah, I'm not okay today, but also too, and, and really kind of maybe if you can finish off on it, it was telehealth where it's just something where we're now used to doing things remotely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think both of those points are key and, and, and accurate. One, I think we're on the, we're in the just beginning or maybe in the middle part of a real crisis in, in mental health in our country in part because of the problems of how the system works, but really just because of all these incredible stressors that at a population level have impacted everyone, I think. Um, and, and so because of that change, it is my hope, as you mentioned, that we will see this as an opportunity in one way to rethink um, what we mean by, by mental health and what I referred to as wellness and how do we destigmatize this idea that, you know, so many people hold that mental illness or difficulties with mental problems might be a weakness. Um, and, and then to your other point, absolutely around solutions. Uh, you know, that's, that's why we do what we do at Trust, because we believe that the future is really going to be uh, telehealth. Uh, and digital, digital health also, I think is just, these are things that have been very slow to be adopted until 2020. And now we've seen this exponential increase in people's use of telehealth out of necessity. And I think ultimately that's going to be a good thing um, because I think it opens up new possibilities for treatment that we have never had before. And what, what I'm just, you know, and to me, I guess, because I've, I've been traveling so much and remote and I've, I've kind of been a remote worker. So when COVID hit, I was like, okay, it's just another day at the office, so to speak. Um, so I was used to doing a lot of things and had done telehealth or phone sessions with clinicians on different issues for, for years. Um, what, I mean, what was the, the barrier of entry, I would say, or, or the inertia against it to people even adopting telehealth? 
Um, well, I think that there's there are barriers on both the clinician side and the, the side of the public. Um, on the clinician side, mental health treatment hasn't really changed a lot in the past hundred years. Uh, you know, the, the traditional brick and mortar infrastructure of somebody comes in, I have an hour long session with them and I see them next week has really been the model that we haven't changed. Um, and there's a lot of reasons around insurance reimbursement and uh, you know clinical models of change and a whole bunch of things why clinicians have been resistant to changing that model. And then I think the public perception side has gone along with it of like, that's kind of what's been expected and what we understand around mental health treatment. So this is a, a real time of change, I think, where I, people by are kind of forced to think about, well, is this the best model for me? And maybe it would be helpful if I had more frequent contact, but less overall time in a session. And, you know, what can I actually connect with somebody and feel close to them without having the same kind of face-to-face -face contact? Um, so I think we're making great strides and we're going to only see this continue to increase over the next few years. Yeah, I, I would agree too. It's funny, you know, there's, I've had a very good uh, productive year um, work-wise and going into this was thinking, well, gosh, I'm not going to be able to be on the road. There's definitely something, everything I had to have was this very interactive in-person type of thing. And, you know, I, I was wrong. <laughs> it's amazing well, yeah. how much you can do remote and still get the same amount of value. Um, and again, I think there was a lot of cognitive bias in myself because I like to travel. So I definitely framed it as a necessity, but it ne doesn't always mean it's true. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, Bill, where can people find you online? Uh, you know, probably the easiest place to find me and my work and profile is at Dartmouth. Um, if you go to pbs.dartmouth. Edu, you'll see uh, people there, and I have a faculty profile with you know media stuff and all that. So that's probably the easiest place to find me. Um, or uh, you can see a little bit of my profile on Trust at Trust T R U S S T dot app A P P. Awesome. Well, Bill, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. I'll be sure to put all that information in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for speaking to me about this uh, very important topic. Oh, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.